All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, we'll be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. Uh, and uh, just want to remind us of a couple of things. Remember that the book of Joel is, is really trying to shape us in two ways. One is in the area of repentance, uh, something that just because we become Christians doesn't mean that we, we cease to need to do that, right? And so one of the things that we do each week is we uh, do a confession of sin together as a congregation. And for some of you, that's not been part of your tradition. Uh, you've often wondered why we need to do that. Well, it's helpful because I think it keeps us humble. It reminds us that even though we are perfected in Christ before God, we are not yet perfected here. And so there are still things that we need to wrestle through. And so it's important for us to do that as a group of people. And we recently added the time of individual confession uh, in, in kind of the middle of it. And some of you have questioned why we do it in the middle versus the end. And the, the reason for that is because our culture so radically uh, uh, focused on the individual that we, we didn't want to end there. We want to remind us that we are a congregation. We are the church. And so whenever you talk about, hey, the church is either, either doing this or not doing this, you're talking about you as part of a group of people, not just the staff members and leaders of Christ Community Church. And so that's important that we still remember that we do this as a community, right? And so that's what that is helping to shape and teach within us, and that's part of the pedagogy of our liturgy and part of the pedagogy of the Bible itself. It's just the teaching of the Bible itself. And so um, we, we need to remember that, that we are being taught to repent, but also, and this is coming up after this particular sermon, uh, beginning next week, is we're going to be taught to hope. That our lamentation, that our, our, our sorrow over our sin and, and the condition of the world is momentary. It's not eternal. And the good news is, is that Christ is coming again. He's going to make all things new. And God does relent. God does forgive. God does long for his people to be with him and near him uh, and not just away from him because they've messed up. And we're going to see that here this morning. Essentially, Joel 2, 12 through 17 is the tipping point in the book of Joel. If you didn't have this here, if, if the book ended who can stand? Remember from last week, the question was asked, who can stand in the day of the Lord? What if we were just left hanging there? Well, that would be a tough place to be left hanging. But God's going to answer, in, in a sense, and we did answer it last week. We know that those who are in Christ can stand uh, in, in the day of the Lord. And so it's important, though, that we also hear it from God's mouth, that his longing is that we would be restored to him, his people. Remember, he's used judgment to draw people to him, but judgment to where they can hear. And here's what's interesting about the story of the prodigal son. Rarely do you ever hear about the main character of the story. God, who sends the famine that drives the son back to the father. Right? Without that famine, if life just rolls on, it's like it's, it's, it's every day's Vegas and the money never runs out. Does the son ever come home? But God in his great grace sent a circumstance in which the son had to reassess things. He had to rethink things, and he recognized that at his father's house, there was still food aplenty. And so while his motivation for going home may not have been the purest, he did turn and go home. And remember, it was the father who made up the difference, Right? It's the Father who restored him, and the same is going to be true for us. But he went home single-minded. I want to live. 
don't want to die out here. And so he knew the gravity of the situation, and it was God who drove him and used judgment to bring him back to him. So here's the question that I have for us this morning by, before we step into the text. What most affects the condition of your heart? Right? What, what most affects how you feel about the condition of your heart? Is it, is it the changing circumstances or fortunes of your daily life? Like, how does that affect things? If, if uh, something happens to change your circumstances, is suddenly all lost? Is suddenly everything changed? Or is it the fortunes of your favorite football team? Or is it the fortunes... Uh, Michigan won yesterday, by the way. Amen. Uh, and is it the fortunes of your uh, stock market stuff or your cyber cryptocurrency or whatever it may be that you're following? Is, is that what captures your heart? Because whatever controls how you feel in the condition of your heart controls you, doesn't it? It controls your attitude. It controls your mood. It controls your temperament. It controls how you treat other people, right? And so it would seem to me that you, you would want for that portion of you that's going to dictate everything else, because nothing happens in a compartment, as it turns out, but you, that you would want that to be controlled and, and altered by something that ultimately is good. In fact, something loving, something great, like God. And so we have to do a little bit of hard work in assessing what does affect how we treat one another. What does affect what comes out of the wellsprings of our hearts, what comes out of our mouths? What does affect how we engage and think about and look at the world? And so what we want to learn from the passage this morning is that we are called to return to the Lord in sincere repentance so as to hallow God's name in our restoration in Christ for the life of the world. Let me read that again. We are called to return to the Lord in sincere repentance, so as to hallow God's name in our restoration in Christ for the life of the world. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So here we have God steps into the story and speaks, and he speaks a word. And again, remember, perspective-wise, this is, this is, the perspective is still from heaven. Remember the trumpet blew in Zion, right? Announcing that judgment was coming, and the whole earth trembled, and the people were called to tremble, and ultimately they were left with the question, who can stand, who can endure the day of the Lord? Now notice how the Lord steps in to answer the question. That's very important. Who moves first? The Lord does. Which way does he move? Toward us. Just like in the story of the prodigal son. 
He is, and we use this word, condescending to us. Not, not in a negative sense. He's not being condescending. That means because he's so different, he's holy, he's so other than us. For him to move toward us is a great act of love and humility on his part. The sovereign creator of the universe who could clearly say, I've got better things to do than mess with you knotheads who I've told more than a thousand times to get it together. And he could, he could even be justified in wiping us all away for failing to do the simple things that he's asked us to do. Love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Simple, right, by the way. Uh, and love our neighbor even easier, as it turns out. No, those things are not simple. They're very complex, which is why he gives us the full breadth of the means of grace. Going back to Ephesians, the full armor of God so as to be able to do what he's called us to do. So not only does he ask us, tell us what to do, he provides everything we need to do it and also forgives us and provides what we need when we don't. It doesn't make any sense to me either. That's grace. It is grace, and it is mercy, and it is our God who is described in the way that Joel describes him from Exodus 34, 6, and 7, right? This is the God who is steadfast in love. This is the God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Would that we would listen to him. Now, he's also just. Don't forget that. Sooner or later, the day of the Lord will come. Sooner or later, there will be a cost paid on behalf of those who have not received the cost paid by Christ himself. But notice here, so you have all of this buildup. We've, 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 for a chapter and a half, heard all about judgment and what's coming in terms of fire and locusts and, and army. And maybe that's one thing, and maybe it's three different things. Maybe it's multiple events. Either way, it is God saying, I am trying to get your attention because what you're doing is killing you, and it's going to cost you eternity. So having said all that, he says, yet, yet, what does that mean? Yet even now. So he's saying, though the trumpet has blown in Zion, though judgment is coming, there is still time. How gracious is our God that he would utter, yet even now you can return to me. Yet even now with judgment on its way, with your sin already out and known, even now you can return to me. Even now when you have made what you think is the life-defining mistake of your life. Even now, while there is breath in your lungs, when I used to work at the rescue mission, the, the relapse rate was incredible. Any of you who've worked in recovery ministry, it is enormously high. You cannot... You just can't expect that you're going to win the majority in that environment, right? Because you're catching people usually after they've been at it for a while. Rarely did we get a newcomer. And so oftentimes the, the, the question was, what's left? I mean, why, why even try to continue? And my argument was always, there's breath in your lungs. That breath in your lungs are these words, yet even now. Yet even now, with breath in your lungs, you can return to the Lord. There is nothing that you have done that renders you out of court while there's breath in your lungs. Judgment only falls either with your death 
right? You can't, there's no treasury of merit. There's nothing after that you can accomplish once you die or Jesus returns. So if you're sitting here this morning, it's important for you to hear, yet even now. You can return to the Lord, and notice what he says, with all your heart. Now, I'm afraid that some of you hear that in the wrong key. I'm afraid that some of you hear that in a perfectionistic, absolutist type sense. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that if, if you, if it's, if, man, if you're not feeling completely and utterly there, you can't show up. What would it require for you to get completely and utterly there in order to show up? It'd require works on your part. No, the issue is, are you willing to offer up your whole heart undivided? You can't worship two gods. You can't love two gods. You can't say, well, I, I, I'll repent this much, but I'm going to hold back this thing that I like to do in darkness over here. I, I'll repent this much, but, but I, I still want to be able to declare who I am in terms of my identity, whether that's gender, sexuality, or any number of other things. I will repent so much, but I'm not going to be generous. I'm not going to trust the Lord with my finances, but I'll trust him with some other things. You cannot have a divided heart. But what I don't want you to hear is that you have to have a perfect heart in order to come. Because that is never going to be the case. If you tarry until you're able, you will never come at all. And so it's important that we recognize when he says, I want you to return with your whole heart, that just means that you say, all right, Lord, I, I, I'm gonna, I get your God, and I'm not. You're the creator. And so this is the fight between the now and the not yet, is it not? For us to continue to unseat the idols of our heart, to have that stuff pull, pulled down and ripped out in progressive sanctification. But the question is, do you know that it's yet even now you can come? with a whole and willing heart. And notice he uses some things that Joel's already told us about as means of grace with fasting, right? So, so fasting, we're going to have a seminar on this in a couple of weeks. What's interesting about fasting in the Bible is there's literally no instruction whatsoever on how to do it, with the exception of Jesus' words in Matthew 6 where he tells you what not to look like, right? He tells you don't go around looking really dour so people can be, hey, man, what's going on with you? You know, I'm just fasting, just trying to help the government, you know, and trying to help the election and Tennessee football. I'm just trying to help somebody with it. Uh, I'm sorry. It was easy. It was just low-hanging fruit right now. And so, so I, I, get, I get it, right? I mean, there's not a lot of instruction. Like, if you, if you were just to be like, all right, Jesus did it for 40 days. I'm going to start there. Whoo, you're going to think you can turn stones into bread and tear down kingdoms probably somewhere in there. I don't think that's where we start. So there's, actually, God grants a lot of latitude in terms of how to use this for our good. We weren't created for fasting. Fasting is given to us in order to prepare our hearts and minds. And fasting is not a separate thing. It's prayer. It's just a way in which we focus and narrow in prayerfully on something. And so here, what he's saying is, when, when, when you feel judgment kind of on the horizon, when you are wrestling with repentance, one of the things that you want to use to help bring yourself uh, to me is fasting. It's to lay aside voluntarily something that has been provided for you 
so as to, to kind of orient your heart and mind. He also speaks of weeping and with mourning. Now, this is not something you can just conjure up, by the way, uh, and, but sometimes it comes. It, it, it is sometimes the evidence of the condition of your heart, out of the wellsprings of your heart, will come these things sometimes. And so there have been times I've been just completely wrecked by the Lord. And he usually likes to do it in public because I hate crying. And, uh, and, and, and I, didn't, I didn't cry for probably 20, 25 years. I was as hard a human being as you could possibly be. And one of the things that set me on the journey of caring for the poor uh, was, was uh, and really kind of recognizing that, that as a, a part of my calling was uh, I was in a Burger King over off of 14th Street in downtown Atlanta, and I had a stack of uh, free Whopper cards that one of my patients had given me. He was a general manager for Burger King. I looked like a guy who could enjoy a good Whopper. And this was before the Impossible Whopper, which I refused to taste because it just seems like you're cheating something. And so, so anyway, I, I, I go in this Burger King, and there's a, a lady who's in there. And she is, uh, she's taking her shoes off, and she's got a stack of napkins, and, uh, and she's folding and unfolding these napkins. And she keeps getting up, and she's looking out the window like somebody's supposed to come. But I know no one's coming. And so I, as I looked at her, I, I, I felt, I did feel compassion, and I thought to myself, and I even prayed as I ate my free Whopper meal, I thought, Lord, why don't you do something about this? And the Lord spoke, not necessarily audibly or through the Whopper or the King or any of that other stuff that's present in Burger King. He said, why don't you, my hands and feet, do something about it? You're here. And man, I, I don't know, my heart rent. And I began to weep. And so it took some heat off the lady folding and unfolding the napkins to have the white guy just weeping in the middle of Burger King in downtown Atlanta. And just some bad juju was going on there or something. So people kind of avoided us both. And, and I left wondering, what, what, what is it I'm supposed to do? Well, about a week later, my daughter at the time was in kindergarten, first grade, and there was some sort of event in, in her class. And uh, I, I came in and, and was in the class, and a young lady named Jaslyn runs up to me, a beautiful little girl, and uh, she had the two teeth situation going on. She, she had colored something, and she handed it to me, and I'm looking at it, and it's one of those moments where it's like, she clearly, I needed an interpreter, being spoken in tongues or something, and I'm looking at, I'm looking at her, I said, sweetheart, what does it say? And she says, it says, I love you. And she runs off, and the Spirit spoke again. He said, do you see that little girl? If you think for one second that that 40-year-old woman in her, at that age, thought, I'd love to sit in some Burger King folding and unfolding napkins, waiting on someone who's never going to come crazy out of my mind. If you think for one second that was ever the plan in that child's heart, you don't understand these things. And if you want to make a difference, you better start getting involved in people's lives at the points where things can genuinely change. Now, I didn't necessarily get involved in children's ministry at that point. I did get involved at the rescue mission at that point, and then we got involved in Strong Tower and ha had an impact on children through the reading program. And so the Lord used an opportunity to, to, to show us, to, to say to us, you, you are the church. You, you, you are called to be these things, to step into these things. It is, 
it is I who will rend your heart and show you where you should go. And, and so oftentimes you need to pay attention to the things that bring you sorrow and that you look at in the world and you think, I want to see that change. The Lord is often speaking, and oftentimes what we want to see change is something very sinful, whether it's the institutional structure or at the individual level or any and all of the above. We're called to all the different levels. And so pay attention to when your heart does weep and mourn. It matters. You should weep and mourn for the, the, the condition of uh, your family, your, your children, your marriage. There, there should be a sense in which you long for God to, um, to redeem and reconcile. And so we need to be a people who know how to mourn and weep well. We need to be able to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. We need to have Holy Spirit-inspired emotions. Yes, Reformed people, that is a word, emotions. And so we can have them. It's okay. And we can express them as well, but they need to be rightly expressed. There is a time for weeping. There is a time for fasting, and there's a time for feasting as well. And he goes on to say that it is those things that will help us, those tools will help us to rend our hearts and not just our garments, that it's not just some sort of external show. So it's important that we recognize, God, this is not, we've talked about this before, this is not mechanistic. This is not simple math. This is not a simple exchange. If I say the right words, God has to move and do what I say. As if, if there was some sort of magical incantation. Now, that's ancient Near Eastern mythos. That is pagan religions. Their gods were mechanistic and not relational. Our God longs to be with his people. Our God longs to be hallowed and honored and glorified so that you would have joy and grace and peace in Christ. Our God longs for us to have the dynamic of relationship that is not a commodified exchange. I give you these words, you give me those actions. How many of you like being treated that way? Honestly, how many of you like like the simple math, you just you that you would love for people to know. There's a few words they can say to you, and you have no choice but to do what they say. None of you want to be treated that way. None of you want to live. You ought not in in the fakery that is so much of our existence, hiding behind masks and pretending to be something we are not, or thinking we have more power than we really do because people are easily manipulable. That is not a good society. That is not a healthy thing at all. So why would we want that relationship with God? Why would we want him to condescend in a way that is ultimately destructive to us? That is no God at all. So it's not that he's saying if you say the right words. No, it is the right heart transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace and the finished work of Christ that draws him nigh. And so Joel picks up and says, return to the Lord your God. And now he's going to argue as to why you should return to him. Because he is gracious. What does that mean? 
It means that he is lavish in his love for us. He is, and, and it's not simple math. It doesn't make sense. It is not something we can comprehend. There is no earthly analog to his grace for us. We try to come up with kind of illustrations and examples. They really do pale in comparison because there's only one category, and that's his. We can seek to kind of mimic in some form his graciousness, but never like he does. Now, he's gracious. He's merciful. What does that mean? Well, that means that he is willing to forgive our sin, that he's willing to, to, to place the totality of the cost of our sin on Christ himself so that we wouldn't have to bear one pinprick's worth of it, which we couldn't stand. If Christ, who was perfect, who understood the gospel better than any of us do in his humanity, was filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in Gethsemane, Lord, Father, if there be any other way, how much more should we give thanks that he was the only way? That we would never have to feel the weight of that crown crushing down upon our skulls. We never would have to drink to the dregs that cup. He is slow to anger. For how many of you, that's, you love that attribute in those around you? Right? How many of you just really, I love being around a hot-headed, angry human being. Like, I just think it's fascinating. It's fantastic. I love the sound of yelling all the time. Oh, just calms my nerves and soul. No, we, we recognize this is good. And how much better is it that our God, who created the universe, who could sweep it away in just a moment's notice, he is slow to anger so that we could hear the words, yet even now. He's abounding in steadfast love. It's as if all that other stuff wasn't enough. And he relents over disaster. That means that he is willing to say to the locusts, to the horde that is coming from whichever direction they're coming from, to the fire that burns and cannot be quenched, you stop right there. But Joel gives a, an important qualification. This is why we can see this is not mechanistic. He says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent? God has justified whatever he does here because we have proven we are sinners in need of a savior. We have proven that we cannot save ourselves. And he says, and he may also leave, he may not only relent, but he may also even leave a blessing behind him so that we can worship again, so worship can be reinstituted and joy can return to the temple. Joy can return to us for our own salvation, as we read in Psalm 51. What a great prayer that David prays after turning the kingdom into a giant mess, that he would have the joy of his salvation restored to him. How many of you, you need to pray that this morning? You need the joy of your salvation restored to you, but again, it's not mechanistic. It's not just, you're not pulling on a cosmic candy machine. There may be work for you to do to get there. Not the work of salvation, but the cultivating of a discipled life in heart, right? And so who knows what the Lord may do? Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're being told, you must worship. 
Nebuchadnezzar. You've got to worship the thing Nebuchadnezzar made. Otherwise, we're going to throw you into the fire. Remember the response. Well, you can do that. God may save us. God may not. Either way, all praise be to God, we're not going to worship your God. Think about that. The, the, the fortitude that it took for them to, and they, you, know, you remember what he did. He turned the fire up. Oh, okay. We're going to turn it up six times hotter. Throws them in, and what does he see? Three men walking, right? No, he saw four. The Lord was with them, and they came out on the other side, and you remember the result. I'm pretty convinced we're going to get to heaven, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to come running up. To those of us who think he is in heaven, he's going to say, thank you for believing in God who believed in, enough in me to redeem me. And to those of you who didn't, he's going to say, join the party. But praise be to God that we don't control him. And the good thing about that is we don't understand how to be lavish. One of the things that strikes me about the prodigal son story is the brother's inability to understand what a party was, right? He rolls up out of the fields, and there's music and dancing going on. It's like, what is this? I think we sometimes think he's asking why it's going on, but I think he's also asking as much, what, what is this? We don't do this. You know, he probably dances like a giant piece of cardboard. Uh, he didn't know how to do it. He, he didn't have the disassociation in his limbs and hips and all that stuff. And so he didn't get it. And that's why he stands outside, and the father goes out to him as well, you remember. Pursues him just like he pursued the other. And so what we see here is, is, is that God, while he may not change everything, while the consequences of your sin may not go away, while there may still yet be sorrow, what you are granted is restoration to the Lord himself who is far more gracious, far more loving, far more merciful than we can even imagine. We don't even have the rubric for this stuff. So praise God that we who are so limited and so arrogant and so finite and so blown about with every wind of doctrine don't have this kind of power. And he who is unchanging does. He who is eternally loving does. So yet even now. Listen to what David Allen Hubbard says about this passage. He says, repentance is called a turning or returning to God. This turning is not a token gesture or an act of empty ritual. It must be wholehearted, i.e., with the full weight of moral conviction. Again, not perfect, but the full weight that you know you need to come and he's the only one you could come to. We've turned to so many other lovers last while. We, we know no one loves us like God does. Outward manifestations, there will be. There ought to be some reflection of what's going on in your heart. So there's fasting, weeping, mourning, which is a defection from God. It recognizes defection from God is akin to death. I just think we have such a low view of being in relationship with God, that him longing for us to be in his presence, he longing to be in our presence, to sing praise songs over us, Christ longing to testify about us in the congregation. We just don't, that's not how we think. We don't value that like we should, and yet it is the entire story of the Bible. 
From Genesis to Revelation is the story of God longing to and accomplishing being with his people. So how do you respond when your heart fails to respond to the use of the means of grace and external repentance? Because for so many of us, everything turns on feeling. Interestingly, for those of us who don't express much in the way of feelings, I don't really feel it. Yeah, but are you, and we got a lot of quit in us. We don't really, we don't, we don't wrestle with, as Paul calls us to, with fear and trembling our salvation. We don't really strive, as Paul tells us to, for the upward call so that we would become more like Jesus and count everything as rubbish in comparison. And so this is a place where I think we are so often fail. We don't put in the, how much time does it take to transform a heart? It depends. It's not up to us. But are you putting in the work at all? And what are you demanding in return or expecting in return? And who's involved in that? Are you willing to seek wise counselors or do you have yourself as your own counselor who is a fool, as the scripture describes you? And then who moves first in the process of restoration? This is always critical. God does. He moves first even in judgment, by the way. That is the first salvo fired so that he could get our attention because we are easily distracted, are we not? How many of y'all are just so fascinated by the number of people walking around? Like they get them walk. I, I watch your eyes. You got to know, where are they going? What are they doing? So, is there a party going on somewhere else? There's buffet, maybe? Missing out on some meat, Swiss meatballs? Right? We're easily distracted. I get it. I get it. The only reason I'm staying focused is I'm talking and looking at you. And so I, I, we're, we're easily distracted. Aren't we? We're talking about eternity up here. And, and our biggest concern is, are we ever going to get out of here? I'm already saved, Cameron. I, mean, I'm, I just don't know how to get, I don't know how to get more out of this, dude. Um, I, I understand. But this, this is, we are handling something that is of great importance. The Lord our God has said yet even now to us. It's called for us to, to be drawn near to him because he loves us, as Joel has described him. If you would turn back to the text and let's see, hear what 15 through 17 tells us. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? Notice the trumpet gets blown again. First time it was for judgment, now it is for repentance. People are called to gather together as a group, not as radical individuals. This isn't just an Old Testament reality. This shows up in the book of Revelation as well, as well as other places. And so here he's saying, take and use your effort and energy to be restored to me. I have called you to me. 
And so this is what they are to do. We've talked about these things before, that a fast would be consecrated. They would do that together. A solemn assembly is a worship service directed toward repentance, not something we do very much anymore. Might be worth doing. And he goes on to say that they are to be consecrated. That means set apart for a purpose. And that purpose is to meet with him, their God. Because every time they gather, what did he promise he would do? Even now, like the one time it's cold in here, God is with us. Be warmed. And here, he says that this is so important that it doesn't matter if you have nursing infants. It doesn't matter if you're in the process of getting married. Stop what you're doing. Come out of the bride chamber and come to this worship service. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you're in the middle of getting married? And there may be some suggestion here that there is the, they're in the middle of the consummation of the marriage. And they're being told, stop on a dime and come to worship. Can you imagine? I'm never going to do that to you, I hope. I hope I'm never called to do that. And notice what the priests are to do. They are to cry out on behalf of the people. They are to lead the way in terms of the process of repentance. They are to ask that the Lord would spare his people, right? And not make that which is his, his heritage, that which represents him, a reproach of Bowery. And notice why. Is it just for them? Is it so that they wouldn't have to suffer anymore in their little kingdom walled off from the rest of the world? Is that what they're crying out for? No. They are being called to return yet again as the priesthood to the nations. Language that shows up in Peter and in the book of Revelation. Right? This is why we exist. We do not exist as a church to play it safe and make sure there's safe content for just our people. We are called to be trained up to go out, the church gathered that is then scattered for the life of the world. Which is why we ought care about what goes on in the various levels of our society, in the various institutions in our society, and to the various people groups throughout our society. This is why we cannot turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to what's going on. Instead, we should ask, Lord, here I am, send me. For some of you, you are sent only so far as your next door neighbor. For some of you, you're only sent so far as the raising of your children. For some of you, you're sent all the way to Ireland, potentially. And some of you are sent to speak truth to power in various circumstances, something you should not do casually, by the way. You ought to be called. And some of you are called to care deeply about the abortion issue, and some of you are care, called to care deeply about racial reconciliation, and some of you are called to care deeply about the mechanics and the machinations of governance. But always, always, with an eye toward God being glorified and his name being hallowed, which, as you remember, is how the Lord's Prayer starts. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
Notice that's what's happening here. A trumpet is blown in Zion, in heaven, and the, the, the analog is happening on earth. Judgment called for in heaven will play out on earth. Repentance called for in heaven will play out on earth through the prophetic word of the Lord our God. So that's why we pray that prayer. That's why we are shaped into those kinds of people. We're not all called to the same thing. That's frustrating for some of you because you just feel like, well, maybe we can make some headway on one of these 5,000 issues if all of us just pulled in one direction and cared about this one thing because the most important thing in the world is X, Y, or Z. That's not, no, that's not how that works. And no one issue is actually more important than the other or even more imminent. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because he is omniscient and omnipotent and in control, even in this crazy world of ours, it looks like it's spinning out of control many times. And so, we should care more about God's reputation among the nations than what people think about us as to whether or not we are looney tunes for praying to some invisible being and trusting some book that's been interpreted X number of times over and seems to have some problems in certain places and, and by the way, is interpreted very differently by really nice people. Baptism, anyone? Any number of issues, anyone? Right? And, and, so, and so what can we trust here? Well, the Lord our God, who the word describes so beautifully and clearly from Exodus 34, 6 through 7, who calls us even now. Yet even now, you can return. And so uh, let's hear from uh, o. Palmer Robertson, what he says about this passage, he says, as an example given by the prophet, the principal concern in prayer must always be the perpetual glory of God rather than temporal prosperity of the people. What are you more concerned with? Not only you can answer this question, what others think of you or what they think of God. And then how is this affecting your missional engagement and your spheres of influence? Are you worried to death that people are going to think that because you're, you genuinely want to be forgiving, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, steadfast in love, and faithful in promises so that you would look like God in Christ, are you worried they would think that was weird? Do you have anybody in your family for whom they would be, they would be so upset with you if suddenly you became slow to anger? Like they would just think you were the biggest doofus in the world. How, who do you think you are being nice to me, gracious and merciful? It's almost like you have an agenda. No, that, that, that is something that it will incite anger, but not in the way that you think, not toward you. As Christ said, who are they ultimately angry with? Him, not you, not us. So why don't we care more for the glory of the name of the Lord? Why don't we care more for, even more importantly, our neighbors to be part of this family? Again, everybody's gifted different. Again, I've said this before, my wife doesn't say much sometimes, a lot of times. But people know 
there's, a, there's just something that radiates off of her that they, they just recognize certain things. Now, they don't get to the fullness of the gospel just by looking at her. Like, you can't look at her and be like, oh, yeah, a guy was crucified way back when and rose from the dead. Like, you don't just get that from the beauty of her hair or skin and all that kind of stuff. But the way she does carry herself, that when she does speak, guess what? Folks perk up and listen. And so she needs to... She needs to use that for time to time, and she does. She's growing in that in ways that are just beautiful to watch. And so for some of you, yes, it's not going to be about a lot of words, and it's not going to be about hustling, doing all this kind of stuff. It may be very small, but remember what happens in heaven when one lost sheep, one pitiful coin is found by some older woman who is impoverished, and one son who comes home who acted like he didn't have any sense. What happens in heaven? When one of any one of those things happens, a party like we can't comprehend breaks out. We're, we're just standing around going, well, what is this? I don't understand this. I don't understand this kind of hospitality and fun. We, we don't know how to do it. Not like we are. Because we're just not that excited about it, which is why we don't do it very much. Right? But there's something that ought to stir within us because yet even now, there is still time. Christ has not yet returned. And while the day is still among us, while the day of the Lord has not yet dawned in full, we need to be about the work of the Father's business, hallowing his name in all the ways that we can. And that begins with us returning to him and recognizing who he is and who we are. So what a gift that we have the Lord's table to remind us of who he is and who we are this morning. And for those of you uh, who are visiting with us, um, if you uh, are not a Christian, uh, you don't know Christ as your Savior uh, through faith alone, by grace alone, um, you need to let this meal pass you by. It's not, you don't have to impress anybody. Nobody's going to give you the hairy eyeball. We don't make those who don't take stand or say any words uh, just, it's, it's not the meal for you, but, but for those of you who admit that Christ is your Savior, that you have repented, that your heart has been rent for the glory of God, this, this is a meal for you. And in this meal, while it's not much in terms of the actual substance, the substance has meaning and what it points to and what it signifies and what it seals for us. And the Holy Spirit does do something with this. The Holy Spirit uses it to nourish our faith in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend, in ways that show up and you didn't know that's what it was. Either it'll sustain you through this week or it'll help you understand something. It just, it works in a spiritual fashion as the Spirit carries us before the throne of grace because that's where we've been invited. And yes, it looks like just an ordinary old room. That's why it's in the spirit that this occurs. And so let us recognize that something is happening. And let us be expectant to how the Lord might use the Lord's table to comfort, encourage, convict in some way, shape, or form. Because remember what Christ said it was really about, right? So on that night, before he was going to be crucified, he wanted them to have something they could return to again and again and again to remember so beautifully what it was he was doing for them and that he was doing to them. And so he took bread, something he knew they'd, they'd, they'd come back to again and again, just a common element 
much like himself, just condescended, ordinary human being who, as Isaiah 53 reminds us, didn't look like much and we wouldn't have been all that excited about if he were here. And so he took that bread and he broke it and he said, this, this is my body that is given for you. And what they would come to understand in time is that what that meant is that the breaking of his body meant that they would not be broken and that they would not suffer the weight of eternal damnation, that their sins, past, present, and future, were to be forgiven in full as the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ. Do know there was a payment for your sin. Do know that you've been bought with a price. Do know that God's wrath did pour out on Jesus and not you so that you could hear the words, yet even now. And be able to return to him in repentance again and again and again to run to, not from, right? So as you receive the bread this morning, if you would, hold on to it. We'll all take together as family, but meditate on how the broken bread represents and signifies the truth that was in Christ on the cross through his death so that you could receive both mercy and grace in a time of trouble. And meditate on how that's God saying to you one more time, yet even now. And so then we'll take and eat together as family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what Christ bore that we couldn't bear. In fact, Christ bore it in a series of moments that would take us an eternity to exhaust. And it would never exhaust. Thank you that Christ's work satisfied your wrath and didn't leave it to continue upon us uh, as something so uh, separating and destructing and disorienting. Instead, Lord, we have been granted newness of life as a result. You have been so gracious and merciful and long-suffering with us. May we honor and glorify and hallow your name. May this piece of bread May it nourish us and remind us and restore to us the joy of our salvation. In Christ's name, amen.